Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. Our podcast spans the globe as we speak with senior leaders from allied forces about exercises, technology, and most importantly, the people that serve our nations. Our episode today continues these themes and is focused on Exercise Kakadu, the Royal Australian Navy's largest naval exercise and one of the largest naval exercises in the Southern Hemisphere. Held last September, the exercise's theme of partnership, leadership, and friendship was woven through a full program of activities in the seas and skies off of northern Australia. Kakadu 2022 was one of the biggest iterations yet, having grown in scale and complexity over the last 30 years. The exercise involved 15 warships, including a submarine, and 34 aircraft from 22 different nations, along with more than 3,000 sailors and officers. The capabilities exercised range from humanitarian aid and disaster relief, seamanship, and maritime law enforcement operations, to high-end maritime warfighting, including anti-air and anti-submarine warfare in a combined environment. Participating forces steamed more than 24,500 nautical miles and expended more than 13,000 rounds of ammunition in high-end training scenarios. According to Royal Australian Navy Rear Admiral Jonathan Early, Exercise Kakadu is the Royal Australian Navy's most significant international engagement activity and is vital for building relationships between participating countries. Speaking about Exercise Kakadu is our guest, Royal Australian Navy Captain Pete Bartlett, who was the Exercise Kakadu 2022 director. The captain was kind to share his insight after the exercise, so we hope you enjoy this discussion. Let's roll the tape. Hey everybody, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala and I'm your host. And today I am very happy to have on the line Captain Pete Bartlett of the Royal Australian Navy. And Captain Bartlett is joining us directly from Sydney, Australia today. So, uh, Captain, uh, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, good to be here, Jody. Good to be here. Awesome to have you here on the show, sir. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, as I do with all of my guests, I start by asking uh, what made you join the military and uh, what made you pick the branch that you did? Well, mate, uh, I think I was always one of those kids that always wanted to be in the military, um, and, uh, you know, I thought that the opportunities for travel and the lifestyle that the Navy offered would be uh, better than the other two. Um, I did have a thought about having a career in aviation, but since I'm two metres tall, I'm a little bit tall for a jet. So uh, that option was never available to me. So um, here I am as a uh, principal warfare officer in the Australian Navy. So clearly the ships are a little bit more conducive to a two metre tall person than, uh, than a cockpit. Uh, yes, indeed. However, I must admit, I do hit my head a lot when I'm on a ship, um, but that's life. <laughs> that is life, indeed. <laughs> well, yeah. uh, so, uh, Captain Bartlett, if you don't mind, uh, share a little bit with me about your operational career and tell me a little bit about the Royal Australian Navy in terms of its footprint, you know, where some of the main bases are and some of the places that you have been in your career thus far. 
Well, mate, um, our main operational bases are in Sydney, uh, Perth, Darwin, and Cairns. Um, I've mostly served in Sydney over my lifetime, um, but I have done some small stints in um, Perth and uh, some even smaller stints in Cairns and Darwin. So um, our major fleet units operate in the east and west coast. We have uh, patrol boats and hydrography bases up to the north um, so that we run our water protection patrols out of uh, Darwin primarily, um, and they're supported by the vessels out of Cairns. Uh, we have our strategic headquarters in um, in Canberra, very much like you have yours in Ottawa. Right on. Okay. And obviously, there's many occupations that one can have in the Navy. Please share with me your path in your career. What kind of occupation, specific occupation did you did you follow? And please share with me some of the more interesting highlights of your command thus far, or I guess your command career thus far. Okay. Um, well, I follow this a pretty standard career path. Uh, you will find that uh, the Australian Navy is very similar to the Canadian Navy in terms of how we do business. So I joined the Navy, became an officer of the deck or officer of the watch, as we would call them, and um, trained on uh, destroyers, patrol boats, and some support vessels. Uh, I was very lucky to do my um, officer watch time on the HMAS Brisbane, which is a child of Adams class guided missile destroyer. And that was just an awesome platform to drive around the ocean with. Those vessels were um, very much high capability, uh, very fast, and just awesome to drive. So that was um, that was a great experience for me as a young man. Uh, as I said, we would charge around Southeast Asia as a destroyer. It was brilliant. Uh, I then uh, spent some time in destroyer escorts uh, and eventually became a navigator of one of them uh, for a short period before proceeding on warfare course. And then I became a what we would call a gunnery officer or an above water warfare officer and worked on destroyer escorts and then uh, eventually missile frigates and then missile destroyers. Again, the Charles of Adams class. So. Um, from that perspective, I've been very fortunate to have an um, experience in a range of vessels, although all those vessels have now retired and they've been replaced with our new missile destroyers and our new guided missile frigates. Right. Excellent. And um, in terms of your command experience, I believe that you were the commanding officer of a mine hunter. That is correct. I was the commanding officer of HMS Diamantina and also for a short period of HMS Gascoigne. Um, those vessels are, are fabulous little vessels to drive. Um, they Got a crew about 45 maximum. Uh, they're fairly technologically advanced, uh, using a combination of uh, combat systems, variable depth sonars, and remote operating vehicles. So they're a sort of uh, in their day with uh, very cutting edge technology, and, and they still are in terms of um, the mine warfare world of mine hunters. Uh, they're still very capable, and it was a great experience. And one of the most excellent things I got to do was to go to uh, the Solomon Islands and do some operations up there in support of uh, the Solomon Islands. Indeed, my radio operator just walked in front of me <laughs> from that ship. So there you go. Um, wow. And that was a fabulous experience for um, for me as a commanding officer to be similar to the deployment and given a lot of latitude in how I did business. And mm-hmm. I got to go up and help those folks um, in the Solomon Islands, which was brilliant. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Um, how have you seen mine warfare evolve over time, um, your experience and, and what your understanding is of it today? Well, in my time in the Navy, we've gone from um, you know a combination of mine sweep, mine hunt to mine hunt capability. Um, now we're transitioning to uh, autonomous vehicles. So we have a, a couple of projects underway in relation to that. And they use a, a range of autonomous underwater systems Mm-hmm. to uh, 
detect, track, and uh, prosecute, and eventually destroy mines. But there's a range of those capabilities from mid-range or mid-size UUVs uh, to uh, one-shot mine disposal systems to uh, towed um, magnetic diode systems. Interesting. Okay. And now your current position, Captain Bartlett, if I understand your um, your current role, you are the director of fleet force generation. Is that correct? That is correct. I'm director of the fleet force generation directorate. Excellent. So tell me what that entails. So the name force generation um, is about providing the exercises and systems to raise, train, sustain the ships and other elements within Navy and also work in the joint space. So if there's an exercise where we do something to take a train ship to a higher level to operate as a task group uh, or operate as a higher level by itself, we are involved in that training so that uh, we can provide the degrees of uh, warfare training like any submarine warfare, air warfare, surface warfare, and all those other other elements of modern operations mm-hmm. uh, for ships or task groups or form bodies such as a clearance diving team. But we also look after um, what we call mounting. So when we send a ship on deployment, we have to ensure that it's, people are appropriately prepared, it's, it's properly equipped and supported. So we um, set up a, a system where we ensure that is the case. So we're effectively... Uh, you'd almost call us an audit team uh, for so much as we set a standard and then other people have to meet that standard and we audit the fact that they've met the standard. Right. Interesting. And so is the sea training group fall under the fleet force generation construct? No. So the sea training group uh, take a ship through their workup to the point where they are are individually ready at at what we would call a baseline or unit ready level. Okay. And uh, then, then we take training further from that point on. However, I utilize some of the sea training group guys because they are just the experts in certain fields to provide task group training and certification support. Or if we do a mission readiness for what was, say, maybe an old uh, golf deployment, the sea training group would um, take the ships to a different level of training to what is normal unit ready level. Right. Okay. So in that context, then, to carry out your remit and to provide that type of joint training for the Royal Australian Navy, um, what kind of range, space, and instrumentation does the Royal Australian Navy utilize to give the most robust type of training that you can to really kind of exercise the units to the greatest potential possible? Well, training uh, is conducted across a spectrum of activities. So what we have is on the East Coast and the West Coast, and to a certain degree in the North Coast, we have some fairly significantly large training areas, um, mm-hmm. which in global terms is quite big. And we will train there in those areas uh, to you know, fire weapons, do basic ASW air warfare and that sort of training. Mm-hmm. Um, if we want something uh, a little bit more exotic, we will go somewhere else, which has um, geography that is better suited for more complex training. Um, and that's with different depths of water, different uh, geographical landforms, for a littoral environment, all that sort of thing. However, we also use simulation. So in the simulator, we can have a worldwide view and uh, put our ships and people anywhere we like. Uh, so we can provide training in that environment. And the benefit of that is whereas, you know, if you want to do an anti-ship missile defense activity, you're using real aircraft, um, 
which you, you can only get so many of those, and they only can fly in certain profiles. Whereas in a simulator, you can you know virtually simulate anything you like to a very high degree of uh, fidelity. Right. And there's the ability to also use things like live, virtual, and constructive uh, seems to be growing across the board amongst all allied militaries. Um, to what degree is live, virtual, and constructive used in training Royal Australian Navy assets thus far? And is that going to be growing? Um, so simulation, live, virtual, constructive, you would say, we use that as an integral part of the training. So when a ship comes out of refit, they go through into the simulators to do command team training. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they've completed their workup, uh, we will generally do another element of that, that workup um, in the simulator. And then we will do um, pre-deployment training in the simulators and we will do part of the task group training in the simulators. Um, we also do command team training in similar systems where it's not people manning consoles, it's people manning computers. So... Um, if you want to simulate a headquarters operating, you use a sort of um, LVC arrangement as well as your normal live exercises. Uh, interesting. And, and I suspect that utilizing that will just increase in terms of the capabilities and frequency, but certainly it doesn't replace being out on the ocean, actually operating some of the systems as they are um, uh, on board the ships. Uh, yes and no. So I think we're at a point where we are probably full in terms of simulation um yeah because end of the day it's you know there's so much time a ship has and people have got to go to see it they've got to maintain it they've got to go and leave they've got to do courses um and all that sort of stuff so you know it's not like you're gonna go well i'll I'll do you know 50 days of simulation every year uh, because it's just programming it just doesn't work um but i think what will happen is as the simulators get better we can use the onboard systems um, in a federated manner in the future, we will be able to um, not so much do more simulators, but do better simulation. Right. Okay. Awesome. So now this is a great place to pivot over to exercise Kakadu, where I believe that you were the exercise director. Um, tell me a little bit about exercise Kakadu. I'm particularly interested in the exercise because it comes on the heels of the Rim of the Pacific exercise, RIMPAC, um, where we've already had a wonderful chat with Rear Admiral Robinson. Uh, uh, that's, uh, that's a previous episode. And we also had the opportunity to chat with Group Captain Matthew McCormick of the Royal Australian Air Force, who was the exercise director for Exercise Pitch Black. Um, both of those are fairly large exercises that preceded exercise Kakadu. So I'm just wondering if there was any relation to any of them or any kind of tie-in between RIMPAC, exercise Pitch Black, and exercise Kakadu. So Kakadu and RIMPAC and the Pitch Black are international engagement activities. So they are there to establish a degree of cooperation with our regional partners and allies mm-hmm. um, and like all those exercises, they've grown in scope to um, cover, you know, pretty much participants from the globe. So in Kakadu this year, we had people from the um, UK, Germany, um, through the UAE, Pakistan, India, Japan, Brunei, Indonesia, right through to Chile. Wow. And the United States. So, you know, it's apart from, you know, apart from Africa, we kind of cover almost, you know, someone from the main continents of the world. Yeah. Um, 
but we hold it every two years, um, and uh, it's it's the Australian Navy's international engagement activity. So it doesn't actually, it's not aligned or conducted um, in relation to RIMPAC, but there is a sort of a bit of a synergy because some of the folks that go to RIMPAC come back via Kakadu and before they proceed home. So that's kind of useful for us, but it's more of a happenstance than anything else. Right. Um, pitch Black is the Air Force activity, which is about international engagement. And that's a primarily different focus to uh, Kakadu. However, having said that, this year we had um, the German Air Force and the Singaporean Air Force stay behind from RIMPAC to do some extra training and they participated in Kakadu, which was quite useful for us and gave us a, 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 a richer exercise. Yeah. Oh, it, it sounds like it. I think uh, um, the Germans um, had their Typhoon, uh, Eurofighter Typhoon aircraft, and I believe the Singaporeans had their F-15s um, among, of course, support aircraft, um, all of which I'm sure just made Exercise Kakadu that much more robust and, and interesting. Um, you spoke about a great swath of nations there participating in Exercise Kakadu. Um how many warships in, in total were operating and roughly how many personnel? Uh, about 15 warships and then 3,000 personnel, um, give or take. Uh, that includes the, um, the Air Force contingents. Okay. So it's certainly a very decent-sized exercise. And please share with me a little bit, uh, Captain Bartlett, about where Exercise Kakadu take place and um, how was the exercise structured? How was it, uh, I guess, devised and what were the primary goals? So the exercise takes place in the Northern Australian exercise areas off Darwin. And the reason we go there is because it's closer to everybody else. Um, uh-huh. And it's actually good water space. Okay. Uh, you don't have, have to worry about um, adverse weather effects up in Darwin. So that's really good. Right. In terms of the exercise structure, it's basically broken into uh, harbour phase and the sea phase consists of a force integration training period and a free play period. So the harbour phase is, you know, your stock standard uh, safety briefs, exercise briefs, but we also have um, some sports fit activities and receptions. Uh, and if participating nations want to, they can have their own um, receptions. Uh, and we have an international cultural festival, which is pretty awesome. Neat. The force integration training is... Um, is you know you know uh, case exercises, exercises, gunnery shoots, um, boarding activities, replenishment sea, and then we go into a, about a forty-eight hour, seventy-two hour free play period where we um, do some uh, free play activity, which is pretty cool. Absolutely. Um, and before I get a little bit deeper into that, I believe there was also a fleet commanders conference that coincided with Exercise Kakadu. Um, did it have any connection to the exercise or was that just uh, a convenient happenstance? Well, I think it's fair to say that the fleet commanders conference is now a integral part of Kakadu. Okay. Uh, so um, the first one occurred in 2018, uh, which was last Kakadu because of COVID and um, it, you know, logically coincided with Kakadu because the fleet commanders could see their own people do stuff. Uh, This time it's more integrated into Kakadu and I suspect in the future that it will be uh, fully integrated into the Kakadu program. Okay, excellent. And the fleet commanders conference um, this year, were there any particular highlights that came from the conference? Uh, I don't really, I mean, I wasn't at the conference, so I didn't see what was discussed in detail. Um, but the highlight is you had a fairly significant number of um, fleet commanders from the globe. So let's be clear, it's really from the entire globe. Um, 
turn up and discuss mutual um, requirements and mutual desire. So that's a real win, real win right? It's you know whatever the number of, of admirals were there, um, looking for you know a good, safe future for everyone, which is I think a good outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, just meeting is so important and, and having, um, you know, common goals and focus. Um, and now that we're emerging from the COVID years, um, it's nice to actually see people in person and build those relationships. Well, you know, relationships are the key, right? So, um, yeah, having relationships with folks across the globe is you know, going to make life better for everybody. Yes, absolutely. Um, so when it comes to, to exercise Kakadu, you mentioned that there was like 15 ships and, you know, uh, over 3000 personnel. Um, tell me a little bit about some of the principal things. You did mention some of the serials that the ships were undertaking, um, but you have multi domains operating there. And just as you mentioned earlier, it's a, it's a joint exercise. Um I guess it's also a combined exercise where you have multiple nations coming together. Um, But I'm really interested in how um, the serials are conducted and how things are, are recorded and analyzed for training value um, for the exercise and perhaps even afterwards. Uh, We don't record and analyze exercise. Oh, you don't? It's not that type of exercise. Ah, interesting. Okay. Um, Yeah. So, Recording and analysis of exercise is pretty hard. Um, and you need a lot of um, interaction with countries to do that. And it's not something you would do in an exercise like Kakadu or okay. indeed RIMPAC. Um, yeah, it's not something people do. Uh, yes, does that answer your question? It did, but it actually kind of begs a, another question. And that is, aside from some of the technical hurdles, is that not perhaps a goal to aspire to, um, to increase training value? Or is... Is the training value in bringing the ships together, uh, conducting the serials that you plan to do? Um, I'm just thinking in terms of like, you know, coalition exercises and deployments. It seems like nowadays, uh, allied nations, um, very few can go it alone. Everybody's kind of working together. And so therefore, I think training together and being able to record an exercise and being able to reconstruct it and to analyze it is got to be an important goal, I, I would imagine. Um, you're quite correct. So um, recording and analyzing exercises is really tough. Uh, and at the most basic level, you've got to have a, a position tracker on, on your ship. And even though exercise, people turn up for exercise, like that, they're not necessarily that uh, comfortable with providing that information to other folks. So it's not something you can do Easily, um, we, we are progressing um, towards that uh, in other exercises, but it's not appropriate for something like Kakadu. I understand. Okay. And, and yeah, I suspect it isn't an easy thing to do, but I certainly see value in it. I, th- I think most people do, but again, you're, you're right. I think it boils down to everyone uh, having buy-in uh, to be willing to share that information, that kind of TISPY time-space info. So um, yeah. Hey folks, here is a message about our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. Cubic supports military training by providing warfighters cutting-edge tools that are necessary for operational success. Cubic is also a leading provider of advanced, live, virtual, constructive, and game-based training solutions for allied forces. 
Cubic has also developed Spear, a modern Department of Defense approved technology stack that reduces cognitive burden through optimized displays and analytics of kinetic and non-kinetic data with weapons effects in multi-domain operations and LVC environments. Spear melds objective and subjective data with a time-synchronized real-time mission log and after-action reporting. This means the revolutionary Spear software allows warfighters to visualize operations throughout the mission training cycle or during combat operations, and this enables forces to understand multi-domain operations like never before. At all levels of combat preparation and execution, Cubic Solutions deliver real results. To learn more about them, please visit cubic.com. Now, back to our chat. Now, when we speak about the exercise, were there any opportunities to utilize new concepts of operations or perhaps newer platforms? Um, You know, we had mentioned in, in the context of mine warfare underwater autonomous vehicles. Um, but were there any type of unmanned systems that were exercised during Kakadu or any other type of assets that might have been new? Um, the Americans were going to have a, a fire scout, but it, was, it wasn't a serviceable fixed size. Oh, that's a shame. But we've used um, UAVs for about eight years in Kakadu. Um, it's not a big deal for us anymore. Um, Singaporeans often bring their um, scan eagles, so that's that's pretty normal for us now. Um, and we integrate those into the operations and make sure we do it safely. Um, but that's about it as far as um, autonomous vehicles or um, vessels, aircraft are concerned at this point in time. Not, not for any other reason, it's just that uh, it's it's not the sort of focus of, of the exercise. I mean, we just ran out Autonomous Warrior 22, uh, which we did a lot of showcasing of autonomous capability down in Jarvis Bay. So uh, we'll certainly work in that space, but it's not necessarily the thing for Kakadu because um, if it was an MCM focus, it'd be a bit different, but um, it's not. So that's not where we're, the space we're in at the moment. Right. And, you know, when we talk about your neck of the woods, um, the South Pacific and the Asia Pacific region, um, when we look at that environment and you look at the region, um, it's complex, lots of competing voices. Um, there are peer threats with China and their efforts to claim land and territory in the South China Sea. Um, So that, to me, speaks to the area in general being contested. Um, So it just speaks to command and control in a contested zone. Um, Looking at the potential threats, how do you structure exercises to be as realistic as possible?
right, right, gotcha. Okay, yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and so what is the future for Exercise Kakadu? You guys just finished this exercise. Um, when is the next one planned for? And what lessons learned have you come away with from, from this exercise that hopefully you can put towards the next iteration? So uh, next iteration will be in 2024. And uh, we have a number of lessons learned uh, about the exercise. Um, one of the really great outcomes was the uh, use of a... Um, multinational exercise control cell. So that's something we will definitely take forward. Um, we need a little bit of work on our communication systems that we use for the exercise. <clears throat> so we use the All Partners Network access network uh, for this one, and that seemed to work pretty okay. Um, but we needed to uh, manage, improve our file structure so that we can get uh, better information to folks. There are some other elements of, you know, having predetermined serial ex um, setting signals and so forth, but... Um, you know, the exercise went really well. The sports day was excellent. Uh, you know, we would we would have a cultural festival for the next one. Uh, we didn't get to have that this year for, because of the passing of Her Majesty. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a good model. Um, people seem to be pretty happy with the training that they get. They get access to uh, good gunnery targets, good air defence um, targets, and good submarine targets. So we're doing okay with that from that perspective. Yeah, and I think it's a fair statement to say that modern warfare is not just in a singular domain. And if we look at the naval context, that can include things like cyber, it can include space, it can include all these different types of things. So um, do you see the exercise evolving to include more domains? Or is it really just more about partnership building and trying to exercise the units that participate? It's the latter. Um, when we operate in maritime forces. Everyone operates across the five domains nowadays. That's just the, the modern world. Everyone operates the land, sea, land, maritime, air, and um, information and space domains. But the, the primary role of Kakadu is to work in the maritime and air domains. Um, you, you wouldn't get into the space of cyber uh, or, or, or cyber warfare in an exercise like Kakadu, but you might, get, you might sort of dabble into the region of uh, information operations. Um, in fact, the whole uh, public affairs arrangement, which goes across all participants, um, is an information operation in itself, which is a really positive outcome. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what we're after is for everyone to come to the exercise and tell a good story to their folks back home. And that's a really important part of the exercise for us. Is it's as already really good that, uh, you know, Australia's got great PR, but what we want to see is all our participating nations getting great PR, and we want to um, provide and support that outcome. Yeah, absolutely. And I suspect the area that you have to operate is also an attractive feature to participant nations or potential participants. Um, obviously, the ocean is quite large, particularly the Pacific, but what would you say is the primary feature that attracts folks to an exercise like Kakadu? Um, I think the quality of training that um, people can um, be exposed to. So we have uh, the weather's usually pretty good around that time of year, so we don't have to worry about big seas and people being seasick and cereals being cancelled because of weather. Uh, the ranges are quite large. Um, the water is the water column is, is okay. I mean, it's, it's a bit shallow in some areas, but um, we can manage that, and the geography is quite good. So it, it provides a, a really good place for uh, an exercise like Kakadu. And, and the port's, you know, it's a good place to visit. It's a very distinctive part of Australia. So from those perspectives, it's really good. 
Yeah, right on. Um, so I guess now the only thing I've got to ask Captain Bartlett is, um, as we look forward to 2024, the Australian Navy has a lot of really interesting assets. You know, you have landing ships and now area air warfare destroyers. And so there's a whole host of things that you've got. Um, do you see Exercise Kakadu in 2024 growing? And um, what are your primary initiatives for that one? Well, Kakadu 2024 will be, the size of it will be based on who, who wants to come. Uh, I, I don't think we're going to sort of widen the net per se of who will invite. I mean, we invited a lot of folks um, and a lot of folks turn up. Um, but there are some nations which couldn't turn up this year for a, a number of reasons, um, which who may be interested in turning up to the next Kakadu, which will be great. So uh, we, we invite a lot of folks and uh, we are happy to support uh, folks as uh, best we can to participate in the exercise. Right on. Um, actually, there's one question that I have that I didn't ask, and that was that multinational cell. Can you just give me a bit more info about that one? Because I think that's one aspect I didn't ask about in, in detail. Okay, so um, this year we um, we established a multinational exercise control cell. So we generally have an, an ex-con with um, what we call the continental numbering system, the one through nine folks. So, you know, personnel, intelligence, operations, logistics, and so forth. And we put uh, folks from all over the world into those, um, those positions as the, the principal staff officers to uh, carry out those functions to run the exercise as opposed to staffing it with primarily Australians because that's just not necessary anymore. We can, we can, we've got really good um, people we can work with from across the globe, so we're working with them, and that's a really great outcome. In fact, um, we came to that because of the... Uh, some feedback I, I received from a young Vietnamese officer um, in Kakadu uh, 2018, who you know mentioned the fact that they got um, a better experience by going to RIMPAC than we got they got in Kakadu. So I basically copied the RIMPAC experience. Yeah, well, I think it makes sense when you know when you get feedback like that to to take it to heart and uh, and I guess that's what feedback is for. Nobody nobody takes it offensively if uh, if they say hey maybe they got better training value somewhere else, but. That's an opportunity for you to kind of do exactly what you did and and, and give that training value. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so as we close out, what haven't I asked you about Exercise Kakadu that, that you think is important? And then after that, I'll finish up with my final question. Um, I'd just say that Kakadu is a really great exercise. Um, it's, it's really good to be part of it. It's um, it's a bit special. And of all the other things I run, it's, it's a little bit of a special exercise because of the fact we have so much interaction with so many different folks from across the globe. And the friendship that you see being developed is awesome. Um, the, the happiness on the, on the faces of the, of the sailors, the soldiers and airmen that participate is really great. And, you know, you know that the people are getting some great experience out at sea doing their job. I mean, at the end of the day, sailors and uh, other folks just want to do their job. And they get to do their job in Kakadu, so it's a great outcome. Yeah, right on. Um, so my final question is, what is next for Captain Bartlett? And uh, what is uh, what's, uh, are some of the next big um, activities that the Royal uh, uh, Australian Navy is going to be undertaking uh, from, a, from a training perspective? Well, well, Captain Bartlett retires next year, so um, I'll be sort of moving on from the job um, and someone else will be taking over. But uh, we're in the process of planning um, our fleet certification period for next year, which is a big event for us. And then we've got uh, Talisman Sabre mid-year, which is a uh, bilateral exercise with the um, United States. And we have a number of third-party country participants 
um, in the activity, which is um, really an exciting time as well. So we have um, you know Japan, Korea, um, Britain, um, some Canadians, Kiwis, uh, Germans, all coming to uh, a Talisman Sabre. So that's going to be a good exercise. Wow! Yeah, no, it sounds like it, and that is a, that's kind of exciting news, uh, Captain Bartlett. You're going to be retiring. Um, as you look forward to that, could I ask you for some thoughts about your career in the Royal Australian Navy? Um, you know, your time in. Um, how have you seen the Navy change, evolve, and yeah, wh- what are you looking forward to uh, in retirement? Well, Navy is a great place. The thing about Navy, our Navy, and really any Navy, or in fact any military, it's all about opportunity. Doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter what race, creed, colour you are, you are treated as an equal. You can have a great job and you can start at the lowest level and end up at the highest level. And that is unique um, in many career streams where you can come to an organisation to spend a long time there and move through uh, from one career to um, many careers, if you so choose. Uh, I know folks who joined up um, as sailors and ended up coming out as commodores and admirals. So that's a really great testament of the the type of organisation that the Royal Australian Navy is. It gives you opportunity. And the lifestyle is excellent. You get to go to sea and have have fun, but do a really great job and do an important job. You know, you, you do get to serve your country or serve help other folks. I mean, if you think about, you know, at the moment, the Australian Defence Force is doing a lot of works supporting uh, folks who are experiencing flooding. I mean, that's a great social activity to be in, and that gives people a great deal of pleasure to know that they're helping folks who need help at the time. But we do that overseas as well. So, we, you know, we support countries like Tonga or Fiji when they have um, some need for help. So there's lots of good aspects of being in the military. The military has matured over the my, my almost 40 years, so... Um, it's gotten better, a better place to work. Um, we're much more considerate about how we deal with folks, and it's just a great outcome for all, all, everyone. You know, that sounds awesome. I, I'm, I'm so glad that you shared that perspective. I don't think Australia is unique in the fact of having perhaps challenges in recruiting. I know Canada certainly has challenges, and, and many nations do, but hearing perspective like that which you just shared, I hope encourages people to look into a career in the military because I agree, you know, I have not served, but I've spent the better part of my life around service members. And I feel very privileged to have many as as dear friends. And so uh, from everything that I've seen, it's a very, very rewarding career and, and you can make it what you want to make of it. for sure. So it, this perhaps is an unfair question, but what are you looking forward to in retirement? Uh, hanging out with my dog, using my kayak, <laughs> sitting on the porch. <laughs> you know what? All of those things sound pretty awesome. Indeed, indeed. And after 40 years of service, I think well-deserved. So Captain Bartlett of the Royal Australian Navy, 
Thank you so much for sharing your time with me, sir. Thank you for telling me and sharing with me about Exercise Kakadu and your perspective on service. And I wish you all the best in your future and, and a very happy retirement, sir. Thanks, Mike. I'm happy to help. You have a great day. Thank you. Take care. That, my friends, was Captain Pete Bartlett of the Royal Australian Navy. If you have any questions for us at Gold Bold, please write to us at goldboldthepodcast at gmail.com. And we wish everybody a very happy day. Uh, Take care and hope to see you on another episode of Gold Bold. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.